Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I am welcoming back Dr. Gustav Gressel, where we will continue our conversation regarding containing Russian aggressions in Eastern Europe and how to forge a new path forward. Gustav, you've talked about a few different defense strategies or offensive strategies, and in my mind as you were explaining them, I, I kind of imagined them as layers, if you will. So the the Russian layer, which was as, as a result of the strategic, almost chess-like thinking of, okay, you know, you moved your knight to this uh, square, I'm going to do something unexpected, I'm going to do my bishop to such and such square. And that bishop, in, in the sense of the Russian layer, is this gray zone policies, as you've mentioned, um, almost a strategic communications campaigns, PR conflicts, misinformation, malinformation, they're all designed to create a state of havoc, of chaos that they can then capitalize on. It's almost alternative warfare. Uh, and it's very interesting how that is developing and, and how Russia is is feeding into that. Of course, the, the traditional US and, uh, and European layer has been, okay, we can do mass ground mobilization for a, for a ground defensive campaign stretching over all of Europe. But we prefer a Geneva misconference to avoid all out nuclear war. Uh, you know, why bother with all the millions of men fighting if it will all come down to a, a conference in which we say, okay, I promise not to make uh, Moscow into rubble if you promise not to do the same for New York or whatever it is. So there's almost different layers of how we would approach a, a situation of war and conflict in Europe. But one layer that I think is very interesting is the so-called uh, Turkish layer, which is a term that I've just invented. But it refers to the recent experience of a Russian jet that was shot down when it crossed into Turkish airspace. Uh, and uh, this caught the world a bit by surprise because everybody was expecting Putin to come out and say, okay, you know, we're going to go and shoot down three Turkish jet planes for every one of ours that you shot down. But they didn't. They didn't. Actually, Russia said, okay, you know, that's a red line that you mean. <laughs> and they respected that. Yes. And there's been no incident since. So I thought, okay, this is really, really interesting in, in criminology. It, can we say there is something to be said here that if we do have stronger military spending and if we create red lines that we mean, and if Russia does something that is way outside of those red lines, there are immediate consequences, that actually Russia will respect that, understand that, and it will create a more peaceful Europe as a result of that. Is there something we can learn from the so-called Turkish layer? And can the impact of that alter the way that we approach defense spending here in Europe? Uh, to, a certain, uh, to a certain degree, absolutely yes. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you really mean something uh, and reinforce it by force, Russia gets the message. And the same was with the Americans in Syria. Uh, the, the Russians have been playing with, with them a bit until, until these famous incidents were, were the U.S. Air Force just uh, uh, basically butchered uh, a bunch of, of Wagner uh, guys, alerting the Russians before it. Are these your guys? Uh, you know, we're gonna shoot at them if they don't do not draw back. And the Russians tested them and didn't recall them. So, uh, and after that incident, you know, ceased to zero. Uh, only after Trump, when sort of when Trump ordered his withdrawal order. Uh, in Syria, and nobody knew how this would really affect things. That the Russians started to test the Americans again, sort of blocking patrols, etc. Um, 
So if you're serious and if you're determined, Russia understands that. Uh, there are, of course, limits to that. Uh, that is, Russia, uh, as, you, as you asked before, sort of why didn't they play for soft power? Why do they still think like in the 19th century? It's something sort of deeply intrinsic to the, the old Soviet security elites and, and to Putin and his inner cycle. They think predominantly in military power. And they think uh, that military power is, is something that has a weight on its own. It's, it's part of, of the nation's will to survive. They are, to a certain amount, social Darwinist. And, and if you want to understand them without reading Russian, you can read Mussolini. Um, he, he's on a very similar mindset on, on sort of what makes a nation a nation. It's an army, it's the armed force, it's military technology. And it's also the kind of patriotic education, World War II memories, glorification of of the Soviet experience, which actually wasn't all that great until 1943. Uh, uh, and one could make from Soviet history uh, a case for actually just avoid this kind of mishaps uh, all over again, but it's, uh, mishaps are not, not something we want to learn from, we, we want to glorify. Uh, this, this feeds into this kind of self-perception of, sort of military might and glory. Now, Erdogan is, is in a very similar mindset, hence these two, although interest-wise, contradicting each other and being on opposing forces, they, they, know, they know their operating system. They know the operating system of their society, of their press apparatuses. Hence, they can judge each other, and it's easier for them to have a kind of gentleman's agreement because they know how the other side functions. With us, it's different because our societies is different, because our ruling apparatuses are different, because our communication is different. We can't go to this kind of, especially here in Germany, people can't go to such kind of militaristic self-proclaimment, glorifying the imperial past, um, uh, that, that just won't go. So the Russians have difficulty reading us. Uh, it's, it's very often, uh, and this comes up time and again, when the, when the Russians absolutely misread the Germans, uh, uh, that they are putting their own mindset into our mindset and, and think that actually we ought to do that and we ought to like that, uh, which is also, for example, why they, that their intelligence service really like the IFD. It's not just because they are kind of a force that creates havoc within Germany. It's, it's, they have a similar mindset. They, they think... The same when they talk about history, uh, national pride, etc. Uh, they, they, they come along, uh, but for mainstream politics, they they just think this is either they're completely lying or they're completely crazy or they are steered by George Soros or some dark force in the background that makes them say this because they can't mean them that what they're actually saying because what they're actually saying doesn't make any sense and they disregard it. And that, this is a huge problem in strategic communication between any European Western government and the Russians that will make uh, this sort of kind of stable situation uh, very tricky to handle. Uh, I, I, I don't suggest the Europeans become Russian in political style and culture, but they have to take to account that with regard to Russia, they have to signal and they have to show force beyond their own comfort zone in domestic policies. Uh, that, will, that will need an effort. Uh, and and the, the, the Russians basically need to understand that once sort of these peaceful Europeans start 
to, to think about military signaling that, that things are really bad. Not that now they're coming to the senses and behave like normal people, but that actually is a sign that the relations are really bad. That That's difficult to make them believe that, but um, it is sort of one of the chief mission of our diplomatic. It seems to me that it's not just a question of uh, what layer we approach this, but it's also deeply uh, entwined with our social cultural understanding of of the way we see the world and and it gets complicated when we have very different ways of viewing the world and and of course very different histories of of uh, recent histories in the case of Germany for example and uh, and Russia etc cetera, etc cetera. and this complicates how we miscommunicate with each other and fail to understand each other and of course when that happens i imagine there's increased likelihood of conflict happening as well but i want to talk about the the last layer that that we haven't so far, which is of the economic layer, notorious on on its own, the the so-called sanctions, and uh, whether these have really this hand-slapping policy, if you will, towards Russia by using a combination of sanctions, a periodic engagement, a conference every now and then, a halfway accommodations, if you will. But on the other hand, Russia has been uh, much more adversarial with Europe engaging in all manner of disruption that we've talked about today. So just bearing that in mind, has it been effective at all, these, these sanctions, these hand slapping? Is it patchwork? Can we offer anything better than that? Is there any point in continuing them? Well, uh, we can we can debate about effectiveness. Of course, that it could be more effective. Um, but it's... Uh, for the time being, it's better than nothing, especially given the European difficulties in, in other fields. You know, we are not Turkey. We can't put up tanks as easily and we can't signal militarily as quickly as possible. So just to give you one field where it really was effective, that is the military industrial sphere. Uh, Russia, as you might have seen, has a lot of difficulties uh, completing its its first tier programs like the Suhoi uh, 57, like the Amata tank family. Uh, and and there are a lot of speculations and why and if uh, I can just tell you from Germany there is a relentless relentless effort by Russian intelligence services to get hands on German machinery uh, on on German tooling on German special materials they need for all sorts of applications from electro optical systems to special armor uh, to a space uh, special materials for especially for for aircraft and and, and space parts um, and they're putting every effort behind it to get it so they must miss it dearly um, if you want to keep our defense budget low, then keep sanctions in order for the russians not to get this stuff because otherwise they produce weapons more quickly we have to kind of build up our own systems to deter uh, 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 or sort of to deter against them. So this is to some kind working. Uh, the other aspect of sanctions is sanctions is, is a part of a wider policy. Uh, the, the issue with sanctions is, um, does the other side rest in comfort that things won't get worse? Or does the other side rest in comfort that things will, this is a kind of, just political signaling, and and it will even though it's bad and it's negative, it will stay at this way, and will not deteriorate further because um, because of economic special interests, 
and uh, and hence we can adjust our own structures, uh, going with the Chinese here and there, trying to steal a bit here and there, and, and trying to circumvent sanctions um, uh, if possible. And uh, that depends on our own diplomatic signaling. That uh, depends on the professionalism of our legal services to defend sanctions at court, but they are also challenged by by very versatile law firms hired by entities from the Russian Federation. And here, unfortunately, we have done not the best job, uh, I have to say. Uh, and the Russians by now, although, for example, in 2014, 2015, sanctions were uh, deterring Russia from escalating further in Ukraine, along with Ukraine's military capabilities becoming quite quickly better uh, on a sizable margin. Uh, now they've basically rested with the conclusion that uh, economic lobbying will rather lobby for watering down uh, or allowing individual businesses to circumvent and break sanctions if possible than to really enforce them or to, to, to get uh, harsher on sanctions. And that's a climate that sort of makes even the same instrument that was successful in 2015 a more blunt sword now because they can adjust it. Um, and uh, well, now with Germany and the North Stream Two debate, you can, uh, you know, uh, independent from the whole gas market issue and how much do we need uh, across what time frame, the way Germany has handled this and has refused to kind of lead a pan-European strategic debate that has signaled to the Russians: look, there will always be individual interests of individual companies that make it up the political echelon that will allow us to do things with them despite these circumstances. And, and even if the Germans had built North Stream 2 or had granted the allowance to build them under different circumstances, uh, for example, letting the commission assert contracts, etc., cetera, uh, uh, that would have put uh, the Russian interest of building a pipeline more at risk and at mercy to, to European consensus making, uh, the, the deterrent effort would have been greater as, as we have it now. Um, and that is from, from the whole kind of how the Russians assess our own political behavior in terms of consistency, appliance of our own rules, norms, and, and legal frameworks. They have discovered that we are not very tough on ourselves and that's the thing they want to exploit yes and the way that they see us fundamentally because going back to the point that we made earlier on the the socio-cultural perspectives because this plays out as well in in the sanctions debate as well uh, russia takes back quote-unquote crimea this is the way they see it. They don't fundamentally see it as an offensive incursion. They say Ukraine is not really a country anyway. So we're going to take back what is ours, Crimea, the ethnically Russian lands. And the EU's response to this is, okay, we'll discuss this in an open exchange in Brussels in the European Parliament, where you can just do a Zoom link and uh, hear everything, uh, all the proceedings, because we're fundamentally a democracy, which is you know yet another uh, sociocultural perspective to add on. And okay, we'll create all kinds of sanctions uh, for Russia. But I'm wondering whether Russia thinks, okay, they've just got away with murder because it's, you know, the response to it, taking over a, a piece of a country is, uh, we'll just slap a few sanctions and then get rid of them as soon as we need your gas uh, again. So going back to the the Umwelt, so to speak, to borrow a German word, the EU Umwelt is, okay, are we illegitimate for taking foreign policy directives? 
Can we not act unilaterally or do we have to go through all of these layers of uh, bureaucracy and exchanges and, and consensus finding, which is great morally, but is it actually just delaying uh, the process and is it leading to the Russian Umwelt of saying the EU and the West is soft and fundamentally artificial? Yes, unfortunately it does. And and the problem, the problem is uh, it actually does so beyond what, what it needs to do. I mean, the EU will always be, the EU as an institution will always be slower and will be focused on the economy because it's it's sort of predominantly a trade organization and it has it has some it has a political weight, but the political weight actually is there to uh, align trade policies with international policies. EU common foreign and security policies have been created to commonly implement UN sanctions decisions and not create loopholes for individual states to uh, to to use in the advantage uh, sort of to use an advantage on 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 the expense of other EU member states by exporting things to sort of differently applying sanctions etc. That's the origin of the whole fuss. Um, the problem is by both rhetorically overflating what EU foreign policy was meant to deliver and uh, uh, not following our own rules, we basically disintegrated the integrity uh, and, and hence the, the deterrent effort of, of our own EU common policy as well. The second thing is a lot of the things that need to be done are in the hands of governments, uh, especially in the defense intelligence uh, field where, where there is sort of a gray zone war uh, going on with Russian spies. Uh, and we don't take that sufficiently seriously. That's not useful. That's a national government's uh, fault. On defense matters, uh, it, it is it is inconceivable how how hesitant we are to engage with Ukraine's military or with other militaries in, in the region to to boost their capabilities, even though they're not formal members of NATO. We have done that in the Cold War. Uh, in the Cold War, if, uh, countries like Sweden or even my own country, Austria, when we created this army, it was created with US advice based on, on US doctrine and with uh, US foreign military aid. And we sent our first generations of officers um, to West Point and, and, and sort of to other training places. Uh, we, sent, we sent them uh, uh, to France to learn how the French do fighting and the French have supported us with weapons and with, with, with advices and etc. Uh, 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 the British have done more with the Swedes. Um, so this is not something that was so uncommon to do. Uh, and somehow we, we, we have forgotten all lessons from the Cold War or, or any, any other proxy war uh, on, on how to do this. And this kind of neglect is, of course, the Russians take notice and they say, oh, yeah, OK, they can gloat, they can have a common position, but, you know, they will not deliver missiles to the Ukrainians or they will not deliver safe communication sets to them. Or, you know, they don't trust them too much. So, you know, we, we, we can try a bit more, um, and that is that is that is a huge problem. Um, the second thing, as you know, I've uh, said that NATO and and EU enlargement was sort of the best safekeeper, and I still think that's absolutely valid. But of course, we also did mistakes in the enlargement process, and uh, uh, one mistake is we have insufficiently secured 
and we've insufficiently taken care of um, judicial and, and security sector reforms during this enlargement process. We try to not repeat this mistake with the Ukrainians and now and try to, to force them into better reforming their uh, intelligence and, and, and judiciary services. But the problem is we have some EU member states who are utterly ill-equipped to fight this intelligence war uh, that is going on in Europe. And, and Russia is making excellent uh, opportunity of these black holes. Um, with regard to sanctions busting, with regard to sponsoring uh, destabilizing operations, all, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, now that sort of these countries are member states, uh, it's very hard to come by because you need to introduce legislations that these countries know they won't be able to comply with, so they try to block them in advance. Um, and, and we really have a hard time catching up with that. Yes, and it seems to me that it's keep going back to the the question of the perspectives because I think at, at the heart of of this conflict, so to speak, between uh, European Union and Russia is is fundamentally a, a problem of intentions and ambitions. Um, you know, I wonder how much of the attitude of the European Union is is based on the fact that after the war, it, it was a body founded on economic cooperation, a shared history, the the horrors of of World War Two, and as well a lot of success. It must be said in rebuilding a new Europe, not only economically but in peace, in in shared values, and so many things, and how that actually leads it in a way to that it cannot understand. Russia, and it continually underestimates Russian intentions and how far they are willing to go. I don't know if the European Union can understand why it receives such hostility and why Russia cannot just uh, reap the benefits of what it has done in Europe. But leading from that error of, of understanding each other's intentions, and to finish off our discussion today as well, is that ultimately, if nobody can understand each other or get what they want from each other, but at the same time, nobody wants a disastrous war again, uh, then what will it take for Russia and Europe to finally be at peace? And can we think of a future where Russia is, if not a formal part of the European Union, at least a, a cooperating ally uh, of, of, the, of what is happening in rebuilding the new Europe of the future? Well, of course, but the problem is, what does it take to get there? Um, for example, when, when I was still in Vienna, and, and for, for this Austria, for this kind of exercise, Austria is about far, far better suited place than Germany. Um, my, my wife, want, uh, she, her hobby was to go on Sundays on this kind of street markets and, and garage sales um, to look for, for stuff. And I was neither interested in clothes nor furniture, so I looked at the books. And I, I particularly tried to collect books from the kind of uh, declining period of, of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire uh, to to up to sort of the formal establishment of the Third Reich. After that, basically, things are quite known and boring. Uh, but before that, the discussion was quite diverse and, and went into many directions. And it's it's funny, I've collected educational books, um, cultural guides, etc. from from uh, from these periods, sort of setting up the mythology of the German Sonderweg. Why we Germans sort of this predominantly come from a households in Austria, German nationalist households that, you know, 
Habsburg Empire is just a Jewish conglomerate of internationalists, uh, decadent noblemen and, and bankers, and we need to get away from it. We need to have a, a German empire and how this German empire looks like and faces sort of fights for the historic rights of the Germans to be reestablished, etc. This kind of blah, blah. Um, how they mentally, uh, 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 historically map what makes the Germans so special and how the speciality and the particularities of culture, of literature, of history makes Germany different from this kind of Anglo-Saxon, liberal, constitutional, well-ordered, democratic states and why we can't be a democracy ever and why we can't live in peace with the French ever uh, and, and why this is all nonsense and we need to fight and we need to be militarily strong and we need to show them again um, and kick their boots. And of course, you know, uh, this would all seem completely stupid in today's context. Uh, and everybody knows that Germans are not racially predetermined to be aggressive militarists. But of course, it took Second World War to learn that lesson. The problem is, you see the, the, the exact same, um, because I'm not talking about the open Nazi literature, but this kind of resentment against the international order that was, and that was created, sort of, that was before the First World War, and that was created thereafter, against these democratic ideas and participation and equality of peoples, etc. Uh, and, and that is the same as you see in Russia today. Uh, and that is the same the Russian regime tries to hammer into its own population. Uh, I think they are the same as, as, as the old debate uh, in, in the German-speaking environment was. Uh, it's the kind of same excuse, and it can be overcome. The problem is, uh, how do we overcome this without generating a general war that will lead to this kind of self-reflection from the point of total defeat and total disaster? Uh, that, that is sort of the enigma policymakers uh, have to solve. Uh, but in principle, I think that once this Russian regime will, will end, and it will end sooner or later in one form or the other, there will be a self-reflection amongst the Russians on why they ended up with their political leaders wherever they ended up uh, and, and how to do things differently. And again, there are you have democratic revolutions in Russia. You have the sort of uh, you have a, a culture of opposition in Russia. It's not that there are sort of uh, the, the, these these obedient uh, people that the regime wants them to be. Uh, if you appreciate them differently, if you if you uh, re-embrace a different narrative of Russian his history, a European democratic Russia is just as possible as uh, there may be a, a democratic European Germany. So there's no reason to, to decline that. However, uh, you need to be really beware what the risks in the meantime are. And I, I made these this historic comparisons for a good reason. Uh, there, there is also a chance that you know, such dictatorships uh, go into, especially when they overestimate the military determinedness and superiority of their own societies that they do uh, horrendous nonsense. Um, and, and that is really dangerous. Well, I also hope that uh, the self-reflection and policymakers doing their job will be able to find a way through the, the ignorance, as you say, of, of nationalism and, and opposition. Uh, of course, this podcast, Am I Cynic, is built from the premise that 
sharing knowledge and creating dialogue such as today is at least part of that solution. But Gustav, I want to thank you so much for participating today and sharing your uh, your opinions on on a difficult subject. And uh, and I hope that we'll be able to see you once again on, on the show at a later date. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that concludes the final part of my interview with Dr. Gustav Gressel, covering the European Union's relationship with Russia and the consequences of its policies. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day. 